on this episode of Behind the Formula, we talk about why you should never underestimate French chaos, terrible nicknames, and how World War II and the post-race period shaped the first Formula One season. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the official, official, official Behind the Formula, where we actually go back in time and forward into time because we have those powers and talk about Formula oh, history. Right back to the future, this. I really did. There's a lot of weird plot twists that's going to happen that no one really understands, and there's going to be a DeLorean and a crazy old man. Wow. Yeah, we're going full back to the future here. <laughs> Even though I'm okay with that. That movie still creeps me out in different ways. The incest thing. All right, that's a really great note to, to start this yes. on. Yes. So I guess we're now going to talk about the war period and like pre-war racing, but we're still not actually going to talk about the official Formula One <laughs> Just season. Just they thought when they were like, wow, they're finally going to get to the 1950 season. We say, no, 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 no. Mm, one no. more. One, one more time. <laughs> Just stay with us. I swear we're going to make it eventually. We're getting there. We're slowly getting there. I mean, there. we were going to briefly gloss over this. And then once again, we realized that there actually were a lot of interesting races and people and stories to come out of this that I think kind of really helps explain how we got to the 1950s season, why it was kind of set up like that, and also like why people were successful. So it's important. Yeah, I feel like World War II has such a dramatic effect on racing history mm-hmm. and the direction it went because it first stagnated a lot of not what's the word it stagnated a lot of manufacturing ca- yeah manufacturing and development. and development of both the cars as well as via that yeah. they were planning to do before they the were race. busy they were busy yeah because i believe um in the coast of like the last kind of like racing season that they had i believe that fee was even like re-going over kind of like their rules and kind of yeah. their point system which is why for actually the last world championship that was never finished there was no winner because fia didn't have time yeah. to put the numbers together because they were in the process yeah. of like rethinking it too yeah, and so. I think the one that 1940s was actually when they officially wanted to bring in the Drivers' Championship, and that pretty much got put on hold due to very obvious reasons. Yeah, it's kind of hard to make a case for um, racing when your racetracks are destroyed, everything's on fire, people are a little busy. People are dying and a little bit busy. They're a little busy. Like, the spectator audience is not full. They're, for many obvious reasons, they're not, like, okay with going. There's no reason for them to go outside. It's hard to close down a city yeah. track when there's bombs everywhere. Yeah. So, I guess then um, we should go into, as well, how the teams in manufacturing were actually really heavily involved in the war effort. Yes, in both good cases, but also not so good cases. Like, I guess the main bad case is Germany's military-industrial complex that was creeping in in the 1930s and kind of came into her fullest crazy Nazi safe scape. I don't know. She was like, she twirled in and said, I'm full Nazi now. And we're like, you already were full Nazi, but now like she took off her cape and like she was wearing the Nazi uniform. Yeah, people people pretended to be surprised. She was like, I've been hiding this the whole time. I don't know why she's French. I can't do a German accent. So I think gonna... it's better. Yeah, she's like, I've been hiding this the whole time. Yeah, and because I like... think, um, as we were talking about, obviously, in the 1930s, with kind of this creeping nationalism into racing, we did see 
Germany and Auto Union at the time getting that partnership with the Nazi government um, where they would get funds from them to kind of push the racing programs to kind of try and turn racing into this great political tool for the Nazis to be like, we're so good at making things and we're so athletic and everything. And I mean, it kind of worked out. They did win championships. Yeah, because... But they also got tomatoes thrown at them when they tried to do... um, because the whole Nazi the races thing. in the U.S. Yeah, because um, we the Vanderbilt. Like, yeah, it was Cup the Vander- Vanderbilt Cup that people were like, yeah, no and it Nazis. was actually funny then the in Germany um, because they did not write about the tomato throwing in Germany and instead were like, oh, because it was late. I believe it was mid nineteen thirties. Yeah, we're saying, like, oh, they were so impressed with the might of our like industrial car programs, like everybody, Nazi program, everybody's talking about us. They're saying that we're cool, and except it was them saying that to themselves. They're like, people really like us after they're like bleaching off the tomatoes from yeah, their going. Everybody's like so impressed. They with them. really liked us and they thought we were awesome while people were like, I something feel, bad's happening. Yeah, like over people there. met us at the docks with tomatoes. <laughs> Which just shows where yeah. Germany was kind of at. They were yeah. in, in a better place with their industry than a lot of other countries, sadly. Yeah, well, I mean, they've been, been also preparing for a while, though, where I know they a part of the Mercedes contract yeah. was kind of the hope, hope in quotations that people can't see that I'm doing in the air, but they're there, <laughs> of kind of getting that military contract at the end of this involvement with each other. And that was actually, I believe, even helped by one of their drivers. Um, we were talking about Manfred earlier, yeah, and I can't. Yeah, or Bruchersch or something. Yeah, he had a. Like, his that. uncle was like heavily involved in the military. Yeah, he was kind a of top German general. Forging kind of that partnership um, between them, which seems kind of like. It's how like, that all kind of rolled yeah. together eventually. Where they had the idea that their auto industry was so heavily tied with yeah. the war machine that they were building is yeah, like an that understatement. Yeah, that it very easily seemed like it, like, went pretty much after the last race they held, they drove the cars back and pretty much they were like, okay, now we're gonna switch over to making cars, which was also kind of in some ways similar to what then, like, Italy was doing, yeah. where Italy was very tied to kind of the fascist government propping up, like, Alfa Romeo and stuff like that, yeah. so that when the war did come, they were like, oh, obviously, I'm going to start producing, like, tools or car parts or what have you. For. Tanks and jet engines. Yeah. They had the industry and the factories built up that they can easily switch the factory into yeah. producing war manufacturing. Yeah, which then the also effort. then became its own complication yeah. later on when kind of your factory gets bombed because you're making military stuff. But then <laughs> after the war, you want to make race cars and you're sitting in a bombed out shell of your yeah. factory going well what are we gonna do now what did like we ferrari do wrong? what did we actually do yeah and so ferrari sitting in like an abandoned workshop going so what am i gonna do with the rest of my life what do i do now and we like just make a fast car and hope for the best yeah and then as well um going back to germany we also kind of have like the volkswagen yeah kind of coming about from ferdinand porsche yeah who had it. been heavily involved kind of in the race car designing as well as the whole fascist thing yeah. Building up a military, aiding in 
and he pretty much was able to produce a lot of their wartime equipment yeah, by actually but like, it is funny though stuff. with um the volkswagen where it was like oh the car of the people but it's like how do you roll out a car of the people when the people can't buy it because you're in a war you're in a war and they can't actually really afford it yeah so it's, it's, a, it's an oxymoron to say the least yeah but and it was made by a psycho so you know <laughs> that's where we're at right now yeah but it's at that but that's mainly the axis power at that point they were prepared because they wanted to well, go to they war. Knew they, they, they knew, knew what they, they wanted, wanted to, to do something they knew that they wanted to be the villains um <laughs> well i mean i guess in everybody's head they don't think they're they're, the they best. didn't think the villains but let, let's be real that the, yeah they were they were like that like they were that meme it was like surprise pikachu face yeah <laughs> But what yeah, but um, but I, I guess on the other side, you yeah. had the allies, which I think passed America, who was already building up a large industry. A lot of the other allies, such as Britain and like mainly France, kind of did not have a huge industrial complex built. Like yeah. France knew what was going on, Britain yeah. knew what was going on, and even but America it seemed knew. more like they were like they thought they could um, politic their way out of it because one of my fi- I mean favorite. Favorite funniest stories I find is one um, journalist who was stationed kind of near the German um, Polish border. Yeah, I believe so. And she was like calling her editor because she was a journalist going like, hey, like stuff is happening. And her editor was like, oh, no, like everything's going to be fine. Like they've reached a deal. Hitler said he's going to be chill. He says everything's going to be cool. And she's like, yeah, that that's great. Like love to hear it. There's tanks rolling into a town. So I yeah. think we're done negotiating. I think Hitler was like, I, I think wanted- someone's passed through a door that we can't close. go close. No, I think Hitler's now like, I think he's going for the bad place. Yeah. She's like, I think we're in the bad place now. I think we're in the bad place. I think it seems kind far. of, I feel like, indicative of some of their kind of like pre-war planning of like, no, we don't want to redo World War One. We yeah. can negotiate our way out of this. Which, we can, And then that obviously didn't happen. It didn't happen. And you had companies preparing for it. I think um, Bugatti, especially I was one of the examples that was really interesting. He saw Germany slowing preparing for building up its military, building up its industry. And he started, I think, in the mid-30s, building up plans for mm-hmm. torpedo boats as yeah. well as, like, trucks. Well, I mean, Bugatti yeah. also, too, is super into racing. So I would almost wonder if, like, if you see Germany every couple months, you see, like, what the, the hell German they're doing. delegation, you're like, oh, they're, like, what the hell are they doing? Only, like, bringing, like, one truck to, like, fix a car. And pretty much in the 1930s, the Mercedes team was showing up, like, the 2020 Mercedes team shows up with multiple trucks to the point where they yeah. they could build a second car at the track if, if they, they needed to. So I assume seeing that, like, time after time you starts to be like, happening. is something weird... Something's Are we not on the same level? I don't think they're on the same level. I think they're going a little bit too hard, too fast, and there's a reason. Yeah, also when you have to go to the German GP and you see a bunch of Nazi officials there, and you're you like, probably start going, oh. This is the bad place. Yeah, like maybe seeing it made him click because what he did. see things in different ways, ways. maybe than you would just hearing about it in the newspaper. Yeah, because he actually was able to see it. And one of the things, of course, like I said, torpedo boats building yeah. out like um, Bugatti actually to prepare. But one of the big things is in the 1930s, I think right in 1939, he was actually planning to move his Strasbourg. So actually Bugatti's originally from Strasbourg and he had a factory, initial Bugatti factory built there. He realized that he actually wanted to move it to Belgium. Belgium? I don't know how to say Belgium. 
Belgium. This is, I'm not gonna lie, I'm saying the word and it sounds weird, but we're gonna continue. He wanted to move it, and actually, the weekend that he was going to talk to King Leopold, which was then the ruler of Belgium, it's just Leopold's a funny name, I know. <laughs> Thank so, you. Thank you for acknowledging it. It's just, you don't As expect, I silently laugh into the mic. It's a weird name for a ruler to have, but that's where Belgium Every time went. I hear Leopold, I think of the movie. Leopold and Kate with Yeah. Hugh. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good Weird, like, but delightful. A young Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Uh, like a Meg Ryan at, at her prime. Yeah. It was just great. It was just, what? Anybody, need, just go watch Leopold and Kate. It's a beautiful rom-com. <laughs> Please, it's underrated. Same with French Kiss. Go watch it. It's underrated rom-coms. But, like, let's continue. Yeah. <laughs> but to a very sad story, actually. Like, he was actually wanting to move the factory to Belgium. I don't even know why, though, because I'm, in my mind, when I saw Belgium on a map, and it's like, that's still close to Germany. Yeah, no, it's like, you the, Audrey, get it's like the Audrey Hepburn thing. Of like, oh yeah, yeah when like, they were like, oh, England it was like, England isn't safe, go back to the, um, the like, Holland yeah. in like, with our modern ideology of how the war goes. It's like, oh, that's a weird, move. weird move. But I mean, obviously in that time, they didn't know. I don't think they knew, but it was really sad um, because that weekend his son was involved in a serious accident that killed him. And he, his son was actually supposed to be, um, have the inherit the actual Bugatti mm. business, but oh, so it was like a Ferrari sitch. Yeah, where it's like my son was supposed to get everything, but he didn't because he passed away yeah. either due to illness or through very tragic yeah. event. Which is even sadder, where Bugatti did not allow his son to race, oh. but they made this new Bugatti, and his son was like, you know, I'm just going to test drive it. But someone was in the middle of the road, and like the son was like, I don't want to hit a dude, so he's swerved and hit a tree and ended up killing himself like that and it was like he wasn't even racing he was just like test driving the car and someone was in the middle of a highway biking midday and his son tried to avoid it and the sad so part, just normal biking stuff normal weird biking stuff but like bikers do Ugh, i hate bikers i hate the bikers that are around in their like full-on uniform biking not people who actually need to get somewhere with their bike but yeah. more like people who do it as sport and are in the middle of the street because of that I don't like them. That's I'm sure Bugai didn't like them either. I didn't. She didn't. <laughs> and the sad part is also that same weekend, it was too late to even move the factory because the war began. Mm -hmm. They ended up just moving the factory to Bordeaux in the 1940s, like right before the war mm -hmm. happened. But when France fell, it ended up getting bombed out. And... Bugatti during the war was very interesting um, as well because he, when we get more into the war effort, um, he actually did a very interesting thing. So the Germans wanted his factory, but he didn't. Well, they want a lot. Of they things. want a lot of things. Um, but Bugatti was an interesting point where he was like, I don't want to work with them because that's going to look weird after the war and I don't like them either. But if I don't work with them, they're just going to take everything and leave me with nothing and I'm not going to have any money. They also love doing that. They also love doing that. So he found a weird middle ground where he sold um, some of his factory and some of actually his car building stuff for half the price. So he still had something left over. Mm -hmm. But he was thinking like after the war, if everything goes well and we win, they won't make this won't make me look like a Nazi collaborator as yeah. much as the day. But then you had the opposite spectrum of Renault, mm -hmm. which was in a weird position where he was one at that time one of the largest car manufacturers mm -hmm. in France, but he was he had Nazi leanings. He literally went to his like met Hitler and was like, I love Hitler. 
Yeah, which I think was yeah. kind of like it sounds weird for us. Yeah. When you like obviously when you look back at store figures and like in the kind of 30s or so period, yeah. they're kind of like interested in what kind of is happening with the Nazis when obviously like looking back for us, we're like, what well, the they were a bad deal. I mean, they're still a bad deal in well, that then, time that yeah. people were afraid of. But it is always kind of interesting that like Nazi yeah. leanings from people you don't expect it's yeah. for them. They were like, oh, what's that happening? Yeah, it was very well. Yeah. Spoiler is bad time, son. Bad time. But no, Louis Renault also had a very, um, even before the war, he mm-hmm. didn't like communism. He didn't like unionization. Mm-hmm. He tried to not have his factory unionized. Yeah. So he did all of, he kind of liked the Hitler thing where it was like uh, the government, con- not the government controls, but the person controls and there's no union and bad yeah. communism. So he did have this leaning already. He really liked An- Henry Ford, mainly to the slight anti-Semitism of Henry, mm-hmm. not slight anti-Semitism. Henry Ford was very anti-Semitic. And so there well, was already- like Hitler liked Henry Ford. Yeah. Because he was like, oh, he's very efficient. Yes. <laughs> this weird term efficiency. Yeah. In a ra- very bad way. Where it's, uh, granted, Henry Ford did create a, like, a very efficient system in creating cars and yeah. creating cars so people can consume it cheaply but still it's anti-semitism we can't forget that part but that was one thing with louis renault and then during the war he it's a weird situation where we kind of don't know what his true calling reason was but he kind of did help hitler during the war because he did mm-hmm. allow them to use the factory to produce the cars yeah. and instead of having germany just take the factory he was like i might as well because these people can still be employed in france and have the factory in france so it's mm-hmm. like french people still making it and getting a job but still, like, he still was tried as not a war criminal, but what's the word? As a Nazi a collaborator? Cl- yeah, Nazi collaborator after war, which is very interesting with Benoit, not Benoit. That's another man that's going to come up a little later on, my favorite man. But no, with um, Bugatti, where they were both weirdly tried as Nazi collaborators, mm-hmm. but Bugatti was able to make it out of it because he had a case. Renault didn't have a case. He kind of, like was kind of cute. Bugatti's like, I can explain and actually had something written down. Renault was like, I can explain and held up a blank piece of paper that says I wasn't a Nazi collaborator. Yeah, and they're like, that's not evidence. You just wrote that in like crayon at your desk. Yeah. And he was like, mm-hmm. but it, it was worth a shot. It was worth a shot, but it was like a weird thing where something, they did kind of kill him in prison and mm-hmm. then that's how Renault became a government owned company because after the war they pretty much was like, once he was dead in prison like they kind of beat him to death mm-hmm. they pretty much came in and snatched they were him. like this problem nicely solved itself yeah it nicely solved itself nothing bad happened nothing here nothing sketch happened here yeah so but which is today still a huge argument in french court with renault's mm-hmm. family like being like you took this you should you never paid us for any of this and mm-hmm. you just guys you took it because you use this excuse of not yeah. cl- which isn't an excuse he did was not yeah. collaborated but, but the is, way they did it i thought as well like with his family that they don't like that he's like Labeled, I think, as well as a Nazi collaborator yeah. kind of thing where they're like, well, it, was he really? But he was. Yeah. But I, mean, I think for them, them, they're like in court or trying to be like, yeah. can you definitively say, say that? that? And they're like, Which it seems to be kind of a, a case as well, I believe, with um, kind of like French record keeping yeah. from that time period. Because from what I learned in like my archival um, training, it was kind of the idea that like Germany is very like from their period of like when they were doing like spying on their 
own citizens kind oh, of stuff. Um, during East Germany when they were yeah, doing yeah, not the Stasi. Yeah. yeah, that they're kind of a little more open about like people being able to know kind of who said what about them to be able to kind of in some way if it's even possible to move on. Yeah. If and like, that's even a thing that you want or think it's possible. While with French records it's a lot more from the Vichy government of like they had the idea of like if you close the record people will move on because maybe they don't need yeah if they don't know then they can't hate their neighbor anymore because they can't definitively say and it actually i believe went to yeah. a, a court case with some um like french jewish citizens kind of being like before i die i want to kind of know who ruined my life yeah and i think that the, i can't say officially but i want to say that they did allow them to open up their record at mm. the end i think it went like through so many different levels and oh. so many people saying yes and other people saying no and i think kind of showing that kind of argument over kind of what is best which i think is in any kind of record keeping from this any 20th century record keeping but i feel like with france is specific where germany's very open on what they did during the war because they were the bad guys they were the definitive we did some really fucked up shit and they were very when you get occupied it's easy to know it's easy to know (laughs) when you get occupied and they're like Sign some stuff. <laughs> you did some fucked up shit. Yeah. You were, a lot of people were tried for Yeah, and then you get banned from stuff. Yeah. Let you know. But yeah, it's harder when it's like, were you, were half of you collaborating and then the other half of you weren't? But, but now, it's like, in the end, all of you want to say that you weren't. weren't. And it's more like you yeah. don't want to actually deal with your history and said you just weren't. Like, if we don't bring it up, we don't have to deal with it. And I think yeah. that's the vein of French, or I feel like trying during that period of like present day France during the World War II period where they don't, well, some of them are like, we don't sadly aren't allowed to know what happened because a lot of people in more in power are trying to like just be like let's just move forward and not think about it yeah, when in reality it probably should be coming up and dealing with it because there's a lot of people who experience severe trauma because of that and some people want to know some people don't but I feel like it's a choice you should at least people. get a choice kind of yeah like, how, of like do you want to look at it yeah do you not do you want to look at it do you not want to look at it but it should be your choice because yeah. your journey to having that closure is your journey yeah well so, I imagine too like the further we get away away from that era as well there might be a greater chance to look at those records because i know with some record keeping the idea is kind of like once everybody's been dead for a while after then it's a little bit more able to come out so yeah we might get that but actually i think this is a good transition to um our next section yes which is the drivers (laughs) i don't know why my leg i like bringing her out i call her claudette Oh, I didn't know she had a name. I just made it up right now, and I was like, what should I call my French accent? And then okay. we called her Claudette. Claudette okay. came we, in the room. She smoked it. I guess we're going to live with that. Claudette's like, I'm here to talk about drivers. Oh and then I'm like, blow into the mic. That's going to sound great when I re-listen to it. Back. <laughs> just my breath so, into it. It's a gift for future editor Yovana. She's going to be like, why did you fucking do this, you dumb bitch? Mm-hmm. I don't want to say or like we know a lot about them and there are, is a lot of archives about them but different drivers had very large parts to play during the war. Yeah, well, I feel like it kind of shows that um, while we have primarily talked about them for their sporting contributions, they're also full people. Yeah. They're not just kind of driving props. Like, they're yeah. people who had feelings and ideas and kind of 
lives outside of everything yeah, else. That very interesting. With them. Some very boring lives, other very interesting <laughs> lives. Yeah, and I feel like too, just the wide spectrum of actions that they kind of took during the war is also really interesting to show kind of, I guess, how the grid was made up of many peoples. Yes. With many peoples, with many ideas and many feelings. And yeah. I think the first one, I think the biggest one is the ones who actually like fought against the Nazis. Nazis. I think they're fighting against the Nazis. And I'm just like, <laughs> I was about to say Nazis and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know where this is going. But I don't know who not turn it out. Maybe. Like the Nazis. I don't know who Nazi is, but like we fought against the Nazis. So you want to start with your favorite group? Uh, or you want to build up to them? Let's build up to them. Should, should we start with? There's, there's guess, a lot. I think, though, maybe we should then, since we started with Germany in the first part, we should start with Germany now with our a couple of our German German drivers from the last one that we mentioned, such as Rudy Cola. I still don't know if I'm saying his name wrong. Yes. We at no point looked up how to say it. We're just rolling we're through. We're going through it and we call him Rudy anyway. Yeah. We don't we're call him. We're first name basis with people because we're afraid of their last names. We see And them. that feels valid. Yeah. Because some people's last names, we see it and we're like. We get to it and our brain just has a little squiggly line where there should be um, their a name. pronunciation. And we're like, we don't care. Yeah, and so with him, we did talk a little bit, I think, in the end about what happened to him. But just to reiterate that pretty much he's went from, he'd been living in Switzerland for kind of most of his racing career in the end. And that's actually where he stayed during the war. Pretty much he sat in his little chalet going, I want to drive cars. And I think he spent most of the war like writing to Germany, to Mercedes going, can I get my car? And Mercedes was like, I'm busy. And I think even he had trouble with, like, his paycheck. Oh. Because it's like... Oh, yeah, I remember, because he was, like, Mercedes He was in Switzerland, him. and the Nazi government's like, why are you sending money to Switzerland? And they're like, it's for Rudy. I assume the little check stuff just said, for Rudy, a little heart. <laughs> when Rudy, obviously, was hanging out in Switzerland as well yes. with Baby. With Baby, but do you want to go on your feelings towards this trope that has been used in movies for way too long and should stop. Yeah, I would. This is one of, this is my soapbox. Of I'm Go for it. I'm Because obviously, as we talked about before, Baby originally was with Louis Chiron. Not a Nazi. Not a Nazi. And then left Louis for Rudy. Who became Nazi light? Yeah. Or as Renee, I think, called him at one point, where he was like, he's not a Nazi, but he's also not not a Nazi. He's benefiting from the system in some way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so she left Louis for Rudy, because Rudy was willing to marry her, I think. And Louis would not marry her. Louis Louis was living a Monaco playboy lifestyle. Louis was the man whore that... for no one. No. Louis was that man whore, but he knew he was a man whore, and we all knew he was a man whore, and we still loved Rudy for that. No, Louis. Louis. Forgot. <laughs> There's Rudy and Louis now. It's okay, because okay, I'm going to continue I'm with Louis. Yeah, and I feel like this mirrors that trope that I see in way too many movies of like, where they're like, oh, I love him. He's a Nazi. It doesn't matter. And it does matter. matter. I'm tired of this trope. It I've seen it in Sweet Frances with Messiah Schunert. Yes, I remembered how to say his name. Yeah. Marion Cotillard told us how to say it. And we're like, thank you, Marion. I assume she's right. Yeah, and it's like, oh, I love him. He's a piano playing man and he just happens to be a Nazi. It's fine and it's not fine to me. No, it's not fine because they also or like Sound of Music. The Guernsey Peel and Petite Society. um, Yeah, I love him. He's He's a a Nazi. Nazi. It still matters. It still matters because he's a Nazi. He's chosen to be okay with a lot of things. Yeah, and I'm tired of seeing this trope. 
Yeah, no. It's, it's not like, cute. It's not happening for me. Baby, why you do this to Why me? you be leaving Louie for Rudy? See, I got it right this time. You did. Thank you. Were you preparing for that? No. Also, and I love still that just Renee drove her to the train station. And Louie was like, how could you do this to me? How could you drive my girlfriend to the train station? And Renee's just like, she called me. She asked for a favor. I didn't actually think about you that hard. Yeah, I was like, she was like, hey. If a woman calls me and needs me, I'm like, there. I'm going to do it. I'm there. I'm there. Which sadly bitch. for Renee also fell in the same trap of when he, I guess, oh, yeah. to talk about Renee a little bit. Another situation. Went of, to the, um, he pretty much got, I think, constricted into the French army, did a little bit of stuff. And then actually, Lucy, our girl from the last yeah, episode, yeah, yeah. Lucy. Um, got him an IndyCar like, drive. Yeah. And so he went to America and pretty much while he was there I believe France pretty much got occupied by Germans and everybody was like just stay in America Renee it's not good times here and he ended he ended up staying and eventually worked his kind of way back and through the US military going back to France I think working as a translator because obviously he speaks great French but um, while he was gone his wife left him for a Vichy official and it's just like shushu shushu how could you you? (laughs) shushu how could you another situation I love him but he's a Nazi but like French Nazi yeah like it it doesn't matter he love him but he's a Nazi and that's not okay yeah and I'm just I if I never see this trope again in a World War II movie it will uh, but they love be it. too soon Hollywood loves that shit they're like but he's a Nazi yeah, but he's handsome yeah. and I'm like I don't give a fuck he was a Nazi that kind of trumps a lot of things in the situation that he's a Nazi yeah like my parents family friend they knew where it was like the girl the woman not the oh, girl, yeah. He was a woman. yeah my parents <laughs> were long story short they knew someone who was a neighbor he was actually German and he was a Nazi <laughs> And he married a Serbian woman, and I think her father was like, you love him, but he's a Nazi. Why the yeah. fuck did you marry a Nazi? Like, yeah. anything else, why the hell is my daughter married to a Nazi? Valid questions. Valid, valid questions. questions. Valid concerns. Yeah. And uh, then also, I guess, to, to, <laughs> we also as well mentioned briefly Manfred, who also, I think, like, tried. Name. I'm glossing over it. It's Von Van. Oh, that that just got scary. Yeah. Um, like him. <laughs> Because I think I'm, we briefly went over his Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah. And it scrolled through it before this, and it just got wilder. But pretty much he, like a lot of the other drivers, kind of was still driving during the war, but driving for a military context, which yeah. is similar to kind of what also happened with Louis Chiron, where he was kind of working with the resistance, but driving people around and dropping yeah. them off. So like, some of them were, like, driving, but just different driving while some of them had already a disregard for their general life Um, and became race car drivers and then during a war said i still don't care about my own life you know what i could be a spy and so i think i'm gonna let you talk about your spy crew my my two well technically three men but only two that i truly truly love and care for deeply and think about to this day Think about to the state because it's a it's it's a bittersweet story their life. I know too much about them and I yeah, love them, we're gonna which, briefly gloss over them because we realized we actually had enough content. 
to make a whole pit stop yes, about them, so which will be coming at some point. At some point when we record it, but we have a lot of content. But the two main drivers that actually were like serious members of this group called the SOE, which I'm not going to try to remember the acronym. It's like Special Operations Executive, I believe. That doesn't sound right, but the I'm British like, made the, the British name. made the name, and they tried to make it bureaucratic, and we're like, why? If you took spies, but maybe bureaucratic, which I think is actually. The but reality of the situation. But they formed this group called SOE, and the SOE pretty much was to create the saboteur network in France, mm-hmm. built in like pretty much building like a sp- secret spy network to gather information to make it a little bit harder for the Germans to live. Just to be ruin there. the Germans' day. And the French uh, smoked a cigarette at the window and, and went, like, I can ruin a German's day. Claudette came out and being like, I can do that. <laughs> But it was actually a lot of women were part of that, so mm-hmm. um, the saboteur network. But the two big ones that were actually used to be drivers and actually were big in the saboteur network were these two drivers called William Grover William. Who, if you don't remember, actually won Monaco. Yes. The, he was said to be a mysterious driver. In reality, he was very, he just didn't, he, the reason his name is William Grover William is a fake name. His full name is William Grover Frederick something or William Frederick Grover. And the only reason he decided to get a fake name because he was like, I don't want my parents to know I'm putting my life on the <laughs> Line in racing, and so he was the equivalent of a speed racer so on the track. Like, in a modern day equivalent, was just like walking around with like a helmet on, and everybody's like, like, "Who's that?" And they're and like, "I like, don't know." Don't be suspicious. Yeah, don't be suspicious. And sometimes, actually, his parents would come on races, and he'd be like, "Don't be suspicious." Oh, so did don't they know that he was in the race? I think like his his siblings knew, but he didn't want to bring too much attention. So like his family liked racing. Yeah, I think his brother liked racing. He like they liked it. But they were he didn't want them to know what he was doing in the full extent. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. I'm doing weird hand movements, but you guys don't even know. It's safe to assume weird hand movements are always happening in this show. And then the second member is Robert Benoit, who was also a very famous race car driver. He actually was named the unofficial winner of the 1927. The unofficial official. The unofficial official 1927 um, driver's champion, Mm -hmm. but... In quotes, because there wasn't a driver. Yeah, champion. it was only manufacturers. Yeah, because he was with this French team called Delage, and in 1927 they technically won the constructors' championship, the then considered constructors' championship, and the French newspaper were like, "We'll just make him a world champion in our eyes." Yeah, I mean, you can just print whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. In considering that's how the, the 20- German, that's what the Germans did with the um, late 1930s championships, and in a weird they just way, went, kind of what we're doing now. <laughs> How some newspedias are treating certain facts on Facebook. We can just print everything you want and no fact checking is required. Cool, cool, cool. Type, type, type. <laughs> to digress. But yeah, that was what Germany was pretty much doing. They were also printing their own shit because that's what propaganda is. You just print your own shit. But the two individuals, so William Grover William had a huge, um, not a huge impact, but was sent to France. He actually, before the war, did conscribe, even though he was half French, half British, he saw himself more as British. So he actually, is it conscribed well, or signed up? I don't know. Conscripted? Conscripted himself into the um I think it would just British. be signed up. Because yeah. conscripted means like you got called up oh yeah no he went to the embassy and was like sign me up for this shit and they were like you have such a beautiful parisian air about you and he's just like darn it god damn it he failed again at being british yes he that's what people said he would he had like people would meet him and he'd be like i so want to be british and then be like he had such a lovely parisian air about him and he was like god damn it not again 
But he pretty much got um, signed up for the army. When Franz fell, he went to England. He left actually his wife, his true love, his goddess, his angels, everything back in France because he was like, gotta run away from the Nazis. And he actually did do driving for wartime officials until he was officially called up to sign up and train for the SOE. When in then he got sent back to France. And when he got sent back to France, he created this network called Chestnut. But it's just a funny network. <laughs> I just like, yeah, we're going to go talk about chestnuts today. And be like, what the fuck is that? Even Germans are like, that's not the cool name. <laughs> oh, it's not a Russian, actually. Oh, You're man. going all over the place. I know. But from there, he got started the SOE Chestnut Network. It was a little bit... His network wasn't... Not that he wasn't great. He actually was amazing. But from there, he was slow in signing people up because he wanted to be certain that the people weren't sketch. He wanted to be hosting like a low-key dinner party and other people were throwing ragers. Yeah, which was this other network called um, Prosper that kind of like led to the fall of a lot of other networks because people couldn't take care of their passports that well, Mm -hmm. which is a bigger story. But pretty much he got his buddy Robert Benoit in the sitch and Robert Benoit got a little snitch called Maurice who turned out to be Robert Benoit's brother. And they're we're gonna talk about how Maurice is a little the snitch. least good Maurice in our stories. Yeah. Oh my god, like, Renee's Maurice, yeah. amazing, brilliant, fantastic. Fought for the resistance. Came Loved out his brother dearly. Was willing to be in a car that his brother drove crazily because he was like, "I'm not letting you die. If I die, we die." Blood brother for life. Bad boys for life. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and other Maurice, worst Maurice I've heard yes. of, turned in his own parents, maybe. But that Most is like going to be a deeper story. But pretty yeah. much he started Chestnut. Um, it actually fell in 1943. We're going to go a little bit deeper into that in the pit stop. But pretty much Maurice ended up snitching on everybody. And Why, why are you always snitching? Why are you always snitching? Which Maurice was, and he got away with it, actually. He never got tried after the war because he knew Vichy officials. And Vichy officials snuck into the French government. We're not going to go into that either. That's a lot to go and unpack. But pretty much he actually, but before then he actually did a lot of saboteur efforts. His, one of his big ones, he was able to build a saboteur network in the Citron factory and he was able to actually pretty much lessen the production. I think it went initially before he started. I saw the Citron yesterday. Oh! It was like a vintage one. It was cute. It's such a cute car. It's such a good car. It's such a cute one. It went from like, I think 1941, they went from producing 14,000 trucks Mm -hmm. for the Germans to, I think by 1943, about three to 4,000 annually. So he actually did build a saboteur network and he was able to... He accomplished the brief. He accomplished the brief and actually one of the people that Benoit wanted to bring in, who they knew each other before the war, A, because they were both racing in the round sphere, but also B, when they both retired, they worked for Bugatti and Robert Benoit was the general manager in the, um, what do you call it, the the dealership? Yeah, Yeah, dealership. dealership. And he worked with um, William Grover William and it's just like... It's my favorite thing that they used to have old drivers sell cars to people because I just love the mental image of like if you walked into a Ferrari dealership and like Charles came around the corner. He's like, hola! Yeah, I was like, do you want to buy Ferrari? I would get you Or he went to like McLaren and like Lando came out of the back room and was like, so you want to buy want to buy this car? And you're, you're asking about the specs of it and he's like, I don't know. I, I It goes fast, yeah. It goes fast. <laughs> Let me go check some stuff in the back and like he doesn't come yeah, back. Yeah, because he goes and there's a birthday cake and he stays and an hour later someone comes in the back mm-hmm. being like, hey, someone's looking for Lando, they're waiting for the keys, and he's yeah. like, 
Oh, that was an hour ago. They're still there. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna go. Somewhere. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna leave. Actually, I'm just gonna clock out. You deal with it. Yeah. Both. Yeah. But no, that's what they how they knew each other. And then, but like I said, 1943, Chestnut fell apart because um, I think we're going more in details. But Prosper kind of fell apart due to security, mm-hmm. a very lax security issue that was yeah. very serious. And because of that, the Germans were on high alert. Mm-hmm. And we're able to catch a few people in um, Chestnut. And from there, Maurice was like, let me tell you, actually, what my yeah. brother and parents were doing. Yeah. And it seems to just a series of misfortunate events yeah. um, ended with bad and, things. Yeah. So he ended up actually... most of them. Yeah. So, like, of course, um, Robert went get, um, actually managed to escape. But William was not so lucky. Ended up getting captured by the Gestapo, tortured, and then sent to a German prison camp, which was pretty much... He he was sent to a Holocaust camp. Yeah. <laughs> he was sent to, and he was um, stayed there until 1945 until these special orders were sent out, where mm. it was pretty much a mass execution of German prisoners of war. I'm um, not German, but like prisoners mm-hmm. of war held by the Nazi party to pretty much just like quiet out everything that they did in the last ditch effort. Burn the to records. Like burn the records and the people. Yeah. It's, they did very well. <sighs> Okay. But then, of course, the second person was Robert Benoit, who is just, like, French chaos. Like, every story of him is insane. Because, but they're like, he was beautiful. Well, he, he was, was French. Renee loved him. He was crazy. Him. He was crazy, beautiful French And I feel crazy. like if Renee loves you, like, that's a good, that's, like, a good tick in yes. your category. It's, like, tick, tick, all the boxes. Yeah. Renee loves you dearly. And Renee did. He actually had beautiful words to say, which I'll, I'll treat you guys to the beautiful things he had to say about Robert in the pit stuff. But um, Renee actually served in World War One. He was a fire pilot, one of the few out there. Me, he, Robert. Robert. Did I call him Renee? Yeah. All these French names. I can't do this. I can't live this life anymore. You're not going to make it? Not going to make it. No, I can't make it. I will be professional and I will make it. That was first time for everything. First time. (laughs) So I'll cry in the corner. No, but Robert actually did serve in World War One. He was a fire pilot. He was like, if I can go crazy in a plane, why not go crazy in a car? And so he did. He had a whole, like I said, a very lustrous career. Ended up actually competing in the 24-hour of Le Mans, beating the Germans in 1937, which was, I think, the first French team in 11 years beating the Germans in that race. And, and like, France was like, woohoo, that what could go bad. But everything is coming up front. Yes. <laughs> I think France is coming for a comeback. <laughs> no, they didn't know what, how far they were. But then, actually, when the war started, he actually got con- um, constricted back up because they um, he so was got, like, drafted. drafted again. He was really happy, but he wanted to go fighting. But they pretty much you were like, old man, Robert, I'm sorry. He was like, first of all, rude. rude. And second of all, I want to fight. Yeah, I want to punch some Nazis. And they're like, Robert behind a desk. He went, not- to, he went to be Captain America. He just wanted to punch Nazis in the face. Pretty much. And then he got constricted. And then, the, of course, France fell. He ended up working with Bugatti for that period. Um, Bugatti... Like I said, sold the factory, but he ended up with the money that he sold buying a, like in a Paris apartment and build having it one room or not one, one room, one section, one floor was like the living quarters for the family. The second section, the second floor was um, he was kind of like preparing to build up like the cars and like sketching cars for future use once the war finished and everything. Sadly, that didn't go as well as he planned. But he actually was, Robert was working with this section called Operation Vengeance, which was like a saboteur. A better name. Great name than SOE. The French were like, SOE, c'est quoi? It's, it, what does it mean, Special Operations Exchange or Executive? And they're like, the cheat. 
we could call it Operation Vengeance. And they're like, do what you want to do, okay? As long as you do your job, I don't care what you call it. And they did their job, but just very chaotically. They were like, we can do it, but it We can do it that way. way. And that's what the British were afraid of. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually wasn't... The operation or the vengeance part was a little bit put to the side because he couldn't get the ball rolling. Sometimes you gotta delay vengeance. Yeah, he couldn't get the ball rolling, but the one interesting thing that Bugatti did was every time Robert wanted to go on a trip, because um, Robert was doing fixes for people on Bugatti's who still had Bugatti's before the war, so he'd go and fix their cars or tune up or do something. But sometimes he'd had to go places to fix a Bugatti, in air quotes, when reality was like Operation Vengeance stuff, and like Bugatti kind of knew that, but like on the GL, he's like, yeah, you're gonna go fix a Bugatti, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And Robert was like, yes, I'm going to go fix a Bugatti, wink, wink, nudge, nudge in this very remote area that no one can afford a Bugatti. And he's like, yes, 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 let me sign these paperwork that you can travel around and Nazis won't question you because this is official and I got Bugatti stamp. So pretty much Bugatti was giving him the paperwork that he needed to travel freely around France and do some Operation Vengeance stuff. But he ended up um, joining, getting um, called in by, not Rudy, (laughs) I'm going to do this again. William to the chess network network when it fell. He actually ended up surviving two attempts that were almost like capture attempts by the Nazis, but like got away because he's just chaotic. They didn't. They forgot. They forgot he's what they were dealing with. And he had crazy eyes. Yeah. And the Germans were like, "Ah, I thought only us had that. And he's like, I'm a different type crazy and he got away managed to go to back to actually um england got a quick training session the one that like william got but a little bit quicker got sent back to france and to start they were this like, like slap ass get back in slap ass get out back out there and he was like yes this is my moment i am going to I fight some star of this show this is robert's moment to fight some nazis and he actually got a very serious and very important task was he was conscribed in this one area um region france up north it's actually close to the english channel but it's a little bit to the side and it was actually very i think nadine it was called nadine nadine i don't, I don't know. know i see french names and i'm like oh i can't make it but he was actually conscripted to actually create a saboteur network there because it was such an important northern port city that because that was where the allies were going to send in supplies for D-Day and everything. And when D-Day was actually supposed to be turned on, Mm-hmm. that he was going to go and start like a group of, uh, what do you call that? Action vengeance moments. I don't know how to explain it. But he pretty much was supposed to spy like... Spy operations? Spy operations to like when it was he was given the call for D-Day, everything was supposed to like get blown up mm-hmm. and like stop the Nazis from trying to blow up the port. And he was actually, he succeeded in this. When he got the call, everything went up. He was like, the boys, the plans, about to be put together beautifully and it was what ended up happening though he ended up getting caught right before um france fell back to the allies because he went to go see his mom before she died because spoiler alert she was sent to prison because of fucking maurice and then by accident <laughs> i i hate maurice all my homies hate maurice. maurice all my homies hate maurice he ended up getting arrested because he uh, managed his safe house actually got what's the word compromise? yeah compromise not by per- maurice actually but but by another situation, we'll probably go more into detail later. He got sent to actually also another camp um, where he also got killed in 1944. And from there, like both him and Robert sadly, like suffered a very similar fate. Mm-hmm. 
um, not him and Robert. Not I can't have two people named Robert. There was two Roberts actually. He had a William, so William, William and Robert. Yes, sadly, William and Robert actually did sadly suffer the same fate. But their names were kind of brought back to light by Vera Atkins. She was like a spy den mother, and after the war, she went around Europe asking like because of the war SOE effort of the official agents they had, which was around 119, only 10 to seven or seven to 10 survived. And she was kind of gave herself the task of knowing what happened to these people and a lot of the information we have them as things to her and gathering information Mm -hmm. and text on them. But it kind of shows you like these guys were not just oh we're gonna race but we're we have this whole life mm-hmm. that doesn't revolve around racing this is our hobby and this is our passion but we, we're people as well we're people with thoughts and political beliefs some not great like mm-hmm. we saw with rudy and bernhardt i thought it's manfred manfred who's bernhardt <laughs> i don't know where that came from but manfred and sir the, not appearing in the story sir not appearing and then we have individuals like rob Robert and Willie. Yeah, or even um, Jean-Pierre Vimey, who's who was also kind of in, lightly involved lightly in involved. the um, saboteur efforts yeah, as well. He came a little bit later. Initially, actually, um, Robert wanted him with Willie's network, but Willie was like, he was a kind of going for the right side, like right-leaning, like a little yeah. bit. He heard some Nazi stuff and was like, maybe... And then his wife and him were kind of new members of the Vichy regime. And so Willie was like, no, 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 I don't like him. But Robert was like, we need, but they want people to fight with me. I want friends. I want, I want all the friends. friends. And then Robert and then Willie was like, no. But then Robert had him in his group. And then he actually did. And he was managed to survive um, yeah. throughout the war. And he did a lot of racing. And he's actually one of the most, uh, what do you call that, successful drivers after the war. Like yeah, but which we'll get into um, in the next section, actually. Yes. But yeah, no, so it's interesting to kind of look at their war careers. I think also to understand when we get to this post-war racing period and as well as getting to the early 1950s seasons, like kind of what they were up to. Because obviously like you can't just fight in a war and then just... Be okay. Yeah, it'd be exactly the same after. Because for a lot of them, actually, it did change their personalities in ways. Like, especially with Jean-Pierre Villeneuve, I think is one of the great examples of that, where when we were talking about him... With, like, the 1930s seasons, he's kind of like this young hothead. Yeah. Because he's Renee's nemesis. Yeah. It's Got like, in a car crash, came in full bandages to race around He was track. like, get it, call an ambulance, but not for me. Yeah. And he was very, like, temperamental and, and wanted everything instantly. And yeah. then after the war, there was he was kind of obviously a very noticeably different person where they're like, he's very serious, he's very reserved, and he's actually very focused now on his driving. So they're like, in a weird way, he kind of came back as a mentally, like, stronger driver. And then, like, a more mature driver. That yeah, that he really, had been through a lot of shit. He'd been through a lot of shit. Buried oh. some friends. <laughs> Buried a lot of friends, been through a lot of shit. Yeah. Had to deal with a lot of shit. His also had a bunch of, also had a baby mama and an affair. It was crazy. <laughs> But yeah, and then, or we have as well with like other drivers, like Akili Varzi, where it was like he was, I believe, developing like a drug addiction. And then at the middle of the war, kicked a drug addiction and then came back. Because morphine was not as readily available during World War II as prior to it because it was kind of being used for people yeah, who were Yeah, so it was injured. kind of interesting then for some of these people that kind of like they came out different. Yeah. The, and I think that really affected the types of racing that we saw. And like the mentality of race car drivers after yeah also well. i think might have made them crazier oh yeah no. they almost died once they're like death might means it, nothing for yeah me. let's dance with the devil yeah would really explain 1950s car driving if it's we've already danced with the devil 
people and grown up in a blown up city. Like what's yeah. what's the worst thing that what happened? Death? What is death? It's very existential. Yeah. 1945 to 1949. Mm-hmm. It's existential. <laughs> but I guess you we'll wanna... take a little break here. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and take a little break. And I think when we come back, we'll, we're going to talk about Via and post-war racing and the crazy shit that goes around with whatever the fuck that is. Hello, we are back after, it's probably a few seconds for you because there hasn't been anything because I'm going to edit this to be within less than a millisecond apart. But we're back after, for us personally, it's been a while. We've had, we've had some adventures. It's really been no adventures. We've just been chilling. (laughs) We go on our time and our time is most important to our time. I think our time is also the name of like an old person dating site. Because it's also like you could put in the contents. It's our time to go. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I guess in, this is our part three-ish in how we broke it out. I know for you guys it's part just one, but for we try to break it up in three parts. So this is the final part to our journey. We're then after this, we're finally going to get to Formula One. So I did, before we continue, want to make two corrections because I actually listened over what we said before and realized I don't know words. So instead of doing voiceovers, you get a live correction. It's still not live, though. It's not live. No. It's live for us. It's live for us. Personally, anything's live for you. It's for us, and this is all. So I do want to fix. I think when I was mentioning the port city where Robert Benoit uh, had his second mission on, I I don't know what I said, but it wasn't the actual name of the city. The actual name of the city is Nantes, and it's in, I would say, the northeastern region of France. I think I said, I added words and letters to that word that should have not been there, like many of my times, and I was like, that's not even close. The other thing is, I referenced um, concentration camps as Holocaust camps. I would like to apologize for that. I don't know what happened. My brain saw that word and just, or non-existence of that i know that word exists i just couldn't remember it yeah like you you knew what direction you were going but like you didn't go in a linear line there you were riding a penny farthing and you fell down the street a couple times on your way to the idea yeah it was i took some turns i thought left was right and i got somewhere it's like the word was there but it just not for you at that moment not for me it's so concentration camp as well both um, Robert Benoit and William Grover William were sent to them and that's where the final time was sadly spent but I guess now that we continue forward in this sense World War II is now done so this portion we're actually going to be speaking or discussing what happened after World War II and but right before 1950 yes so this is more like Via people getting their ground, starting to get racing again. Most of Europe is destroyed or obliterated mm-hmm. in some way. And people just trying to get their shit together. Yeah, I feel like this was another section where we were like, oh, we'll say like two sentences. But actually, it is kind of an interesting period of racing, even though it's not very official in the way that we know racing. Yeah. But still a lot of really weird and interesting races happen. Yeah, because I felt like this portion was what should have happened five years ago if the war never happened. Yeah. And also, well, I like to acknowledge, I'm sorry for listeners, there's a weird noise outside. We thought we could wait, but people outside thinking they're Nick fucking Offerman. No offense to Nick fucking Offerman. We love Nick fucking Offerman, but there's only one Nick fucking Offerman. Not that asshole outside trying to do woodworking on the, like, a punk-ass little bitch. Yeah, it's also, like, really hot out, so that's a choice. That's a choice someone made to be like, you know... I'm going to do this at three around 3 p.m. on a Monday in California summer. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, this is what we got. 
So I guess I explained the first race of after the war and where it was. It actually was in 1945, right after, I believe, I think at that point, fighting in Europe has stopped. I think at that point, um, fighting in Asia or specifically Japan has stopped due to the two nuclear bombs being sent. And this was actually that concept of it was started by this man. Let me get his name. It's very French. What else would you think? So his name is Maurice Mistivier. We have another Maurice. We have another, but this one is a little punk ass little bitch like other Maurice, like Robert Benoit's brother. But is he as good as other Maurice? Maurice Dreyfus. Maybe close. Okay, we're we have a Maurice leaderboard. We have a le- yes. There's a lot of French people, and a lot of them decide to be named call their yeah, kids Maurice. I think we need to start having a power ranking. <laughs> the top tier Maurice. Yeah. So this one's actually um, Maurice. This Maurice, he actually was friends with Benoit and all, and William Grover William. He actually knew them before the war and during William Grover Williams, not William Grover Williams, Grover Benoit's funeral because they've never received the body, but they held like a mass for him. After the war in Europe ended, and they, Maurice and a couple of other drivers at the funeral, were like, "How do we honor his name? But also, how do we honor all these people's names that fell?" And so his idea was to set up three races after the four officially ended in Paris and call it Bois de Boulogne races. And Bois de Boulogne is. Um, outside of the Andesmonts in Paris. It's like this very large park. It has like, a, at that point, it had like this um, little circle around it. So almost like a circuit like, but it was a street circuit. It actually was a f- around the time where our, who was the weird dude who had the tricycle and who brought the tractor? Uh, is it Didion? Yeah, Didion. is actually where Didion tested some of his first ever cars oh. too. Actually, did you know that as also part of Didion's tricycle, it apparently had a carriage in the back and he was like towing people behind him in a little cart. And that just apparently made an um, organizers from the tricycle race that we talked about oh. prior made them extra pissed. You know, he had a he had like a little cart and had people he was pulling after him. You know, Dion literally was like, "Is that a pipe with the car?" Yeah, and also seriously anti-Semitic. So we're just like a lot of things Dion was doing that was extremely questionable. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of Bois de Boulogne, oh, I'm gonna I'm butchering all of this. <laughs> That's what he decided with a group of other drivers to set up three races. So the three races set up were first one. The Robert Benoit Cup, after our man Robert Benoit. It was actually also set up these three races in different t- car types. So they actually tried to break it up with a formula. Ooh, la, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> There's a formula in here. And actually, the Robert Benoit Cup had 1,100cc uncharged, um, unsupercharged cars to, I think it was, no, it was from, ugh. I hate the leader stuff. I never go well. Do you so, think it was pretty much the past um, formulas they've been using? Yeah. Alrighty. And so, well, it was specifically two because they had like the only cars they had at this point was whatever survived. Yeah. So they like called up friends being like, you want to be in this race? And people were like, I'm going to go to a cheese factory. You got to get my car. Yeah. I believe in this time as well as a lot of, um, how, how do you call them with the V? 
Of Watcherettes. Yeah, there were a lot of those that had kind of started, um, I think, being more of them right before the war. They were like kind of a smaller car that sometimes they would use to pad out a race. Yeah. They would literally throw other cars in the GP just to fill up the grid, which I would laugh at. But, I mean, we let Haas show up every week. Yeah. They, so, they bring whatever the fuck they bring every week. I mean, as Seb said, they're in a Haas. They're in a Haas. They're doing the best they can. Yeah. But, yeah, so I think a lot of those, like, littler cars as well yeah. were kind of left over that they were bringing. Out. Yeah, so in the Robert Renoir Cup, it was actually specifically 1,500 unsupercharged engines and under. Mm-hmm. I don't know what any of that means, but it was the baby car, so I maybe assume the Voiturettes. Yeah. And that actually was the first race of the season, of not the season, of the year, because I don't think they had any other races actually in 1945, because people were like, we still we still finished up a war. Yeah. And everything's actually, on fire and we have no money. Yes. And actually also like this race, like the full Bois de Boulogne Cup, actually I think they estimate around 100,000 to 200,000 spectators came to visit oh. in Paris, because it was like, it was almost like the war is ended. One of the first happy occasions <laughs> they had had in a while. Yeah, in Paris, and it was like, almost like to They're commemorate. They're like, we're here to party. We're here to party, but also to like to commemorate yeah. people, but we're also here to pop party. So the first Robert Benoit Cup, it was 36 races. It was, I think, won by a Simca Fiat um, by this one Italian-French racer called Emilio Gordini. And he actually was on the win. He was awarded the both the trophy and like, what do you call it, a wreath? What oh, yeah. Like? I love when they put wreaths on they them both. because they look so confused. Yeah. So they was awarded the trophy actually by Robert Benoit's daughter. And at the end of this race, they did like a call to arms or observance for a minute and like did like the call to arms almost for a mm-hmm. moment of silence for everybody who fell for the fell during the war. And that was actually all three races at the mm-hmm. end of each run had this call of silence. And it was almost like a way to commemorate. So that was the first cup named after our man. My boy, Robert Benoit, peace and love, no trademark. I love this man. He's just like, he was wonderful. The third one's the Coupe de la Liberation. I really do. Your voice went a lot of places on there. Yes. So that one has actually had from the supercharged 1,500cc to the 2,000cc unsupercharged. It actually was, I think it was run by a Maserati supercharged and drive by Henri Louvain. I don't know how to say I think I said that right. And it actually had our dude Maurice Mestivier in there. He was like, I race. I make races. I do everything. What I'm, is like... I'm Beyonce. Well, like, isn't that a conflict of interest? No, he made the race. Because at that to point... To make the race and be in the race. Because he had the car. Like, what if Michael Massey made the race and then got in the race? <laughs> And they called him on the radio asking him race questions. And he's like, I'm a little busy. I'm trying to beat your asses. Yeah. I, you, I can't point- give you a penalty for the overtake because I'm doing it. I can't. I just gave myself three p- grace for putting a penalty. <laughs> oh, that was so funny. I think this was more like they made it for like it was there was no no skin in the game. It was mm-hmm. more like a spectacular We're just show. We're here for fun. We're here for funsies. So the same idea after only the Vaux won the race, they had like a little celebration and then a moment of silence. But the big race that day, the big boy time, it was like you gotta get your big pants on, your big boy pants on. <laughs> That sounded really wrong. I'm sorry, people. Oh, it was the cup. Le, the, 
le cup. I've put the cup de prisoners. I just combined two languages in my notes. It made no sense. But they were actually the fastest cars of the lineup. They were um, all engines over 3,000 cc's. And that actually was participé Jean-Pierre Vemille. Yeah, that bitch. He came back. And he was actually driving Robert Benoit's car. So actually, but he almost didn't come. What happened was he was at that point part of the free French Air Force. Um, and he was stationed somewhere. But the worry was like he couldn't even make to qualifying. So he couldn't even qualify for the race. And Rom- Rob, what was his name? Raymond Sommer had his brother also stationed in the same location. I think his brother was like pretty high up at that point in the military. And to get Jean-Pierre Vimeo to the race, his brother was able to sign him off for a day's like... Oh, like give him leave? Yeah, give him leave for a day. So the way, so he pretty much came in last minute, drove on track and lined up in the back because they were like, he didn't make it to qualifying. He's like really late and we're about to start in two seconds. Just get back there. Get back there. And actually he ended up winning the race in his um, old Bugatti given to him by, well, not given to him. He inherited from Robert Benoit Mm -hmm. and he actually beat. Um, Sommer that day and I think it was within four laps he was within four laps he was leading the race and I think there was like 43 laps total in the race so he was just up he was going he was going he was on a drive he was a Mercedes 2020 Mercedes he was on a drive there by himself no one really was able to reach him and at that point it kind of facilitated this rivalry that you're gonna we're gonna see in the next few years between Raymond Sommer and um, Jean-Pierre Vimeo where it's like they're constantly pushing each other and constantly trying to win each other and it was also sadly the last time any Bugatti actually was successful in a race (laughs) because by 1945 I remember as I mentioned before Bugatti was trying was doing certain things to try to not get his shit taken away and be tried as a Nazi collaborator because he really wasn't he was just trying to like many people survive during the war based on my understanding and what I've read so after this though he was tried as one at one point they took away his company but then they gave it back to him but at that point it was too late and by the time he passed away in 1947 he was very ill um, his son who did survive um, not the one that passed away who took over the company uh, it kind of went into bankruptcy and they ended up having to sell to a secondary owner and at the end even though he was trying to build Buagadi up after the war he really could and like the name Bugatti is still back and it's still living, but the idea of them racing hasn't been as big as since they were in the beginning, which they were like the godfathers of racing at that time for France. Bam. But that was a big race during that time. Those were three races that Maurice was like, I got to do it for my boy. I got to do it for my boy, Robert Benoit. They really made a race just for Robert, but they also commemorated Willie Grover William at the end as well. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So those were the three races officially after the war. Right. But we had more starting right, in 1946. you're going to throw it over to me? Yeah, I throw you the baton. Oh, Have thank fun. you. Yeah, this I guess to start kind of getting us to um, the first season of F1, we kind of need to talk about a lot of the GPs that happened in the post-war period, as well as kind of the groundwork being laid for what became the FIA World Championship of 1950 because FIA was actually well, I guess I guess they were rebranded more they, than yeah. um, set up in 1946. Yeah, they saw they were like they were initially called AIACR. We're not going to go into that name because we, yeah, we yield FIA. Yeah. But then they came in 1946 and they were like you said they were like you know a lot of stuff happened. I think you know what'll fix it. And have people exhuse it up and name change. 
Yeah. Name change fixes everything. Um, yeah. And then actually, in just as we're going to do a later pit stop to talk more about World War II spy work, we're also going to go into more the birth of Fia and her inherent complications of her existence on the world political stage in another little bit. But right now, it's just important to know yeah. that in 1946, they all met up again. There were like different countries that were more yeah. powerful and that kind of is putting Fia a little bit on the back foot. But she is developing the Formula One regulations, or as they called it when they set it up, Formula A. And Formula B. Exactly. And that really didn't last very long because people literally heard that and was like, you know what we're going to call it? Actually, Formula One. And Fia's like, no, I said Formula A. And they're like, Formula One. Formula One. But yeah, but I think we though we do see the groundwork for obviously the Formula One regulations and the regulations we were talking about in um, the early 1940s, where they were already starting to kind of creating new rules, playing around with what worked. Yeah. And so they were, I think they were kind of building toward this. And even I would say in this post-war period, if we look at the type, type of GPs that were held and the way they were held, it looks like kind of, Via knew what they were working toward, yeah. that they wanted a world championship, but because of the state of Europe, at that point like a lot of circuits had actually been destroyed during the war a lot of countries and teams weren't in a position to have the money or the cars to kind of get here so we kind of see like this incremental push towards f1 as we know it at this point yes because like they didn't really like they were trying their best with what they had and yeah like i said in the beginning if they didn't have that period of destruction it probably would have happened earlier and the regulations would have been set up yeah exactly and also it's another time where i feel like as well we see teams kind of figuring out what they're even going to be like ferrari who i think at one point in the post-war period after having kind of been a manufacturer for the war was pretty much sitting in a bombed out factory in italy going what are we going to do with the rest of our lives after this like should we just make trucks or something or just make tools or should we continue making cars is that a good financial choice for us <laughs> guess what it was <laughs> yeah yeah no we are all very lucky that someone convinced enzo ferrari that no you should make luxury sports cars i will help you sell them to americans um, GIs. yeah and i'll sell them in america for you based on kind of these positions as well we have some teams that come out really strong out of this post-war period like alfa romeo comes out really strong they were developing their voiture i never know how to say Voiturettes? yeah they had been really developing one before the war oh the so, alfetas yeah the alfetas. yeah and so after the war they were kind of in that position to get a better jump on the, all the other teams where they're like oh we've already done the research the car is kind of together we just need to throw a couple more things in yeah. and we can roll her out so i believe in like the 1946 season they pretty much were rolling this car out while everybody was like i pulled that out of a cheese factory yeah it was like it was funny actually one of the drivers from the bois de boulogne cup he actually pulled his car out of farmyard and when he was putting it together he actually in the race he ended up having to retire because there was like a blown gasket there was a mechanical issue when he actually came out and started looking at it it was like rat shit in one of the exhaust pipes and he went to Jean-Pierre Vermeer and said oh there was rat shit that's why I couldn't win Jean-Pierre Vermeer was like I will now call you little rat shit man brutal 
Um, but yeah, but in 1946 was our kind of our first, not a, it's our first unofficial official season. Yeah. It was like um, unofficial official. It yeah, like- and they held three main events in this, such as the Turin GP, which is actually the first GP that used the Formula A regulations, the Nations GP, and the Rene de Bellage GP. But all in all, I think they say, like, 20 or so GPs were held, but these were kind of the main events. Yeah, because, like, it was, like, a GP was held, but it wasn't really under any official, like, there was official regulation, but, like, they pretty much were using cars that they could find. Yeah, they were mainly using, like, Maseratis and, like, Alfa Romeos. I think a couple, like, ERAs and, like, Bugattis were scattered in. And actually, a lot of these events were held in France um, because... Being able to roll out their three races right at the end of the war, I think, is really probably pointing to that France had a little bit of infrastructure. Yeah, they did not in a position. Yeah, they did not experience the level of destruction that many other European countries, like Italy and especially like um, Germany, experienced after the war. Yeah, and actually, within this um, season that wasn't a season, Raymond Somer, who we talked about earlier, won nine out of the twenty events. So he was kind of the most wins of a season that wasn't a season. We also had a strong showing from his friend Jean-Pierre Vimey, Farina, Tazio, Varzi. All of our friends are back. Yeah, but it's just like they're more sad and depressed. And oh, bad. yeah. Something bad happened to them. Exactly. Um, and then a lot of these races obviously were being held on city tracks because permanent tracks have pretty much been destroyed by the war and were yeah. needed for repairs. Like, especially Monza was pretty much just like destroyed, I think, by the Allies oh. and they were just slowly trying to piece it back together. Oh, yeah. Some of the teams are pretty much running like half new cars, half old cars. Yeah, where it's like you can't really put regulations if you don't have the cars or the infrastructure needed to build yeah, those regulations. And just as well, to those regulations. And just as me. well within the GPs that were held, um, pretty much each one kind of got their choice of how they pretty much told the drivers what formula they were running. So there was still a wide spectrum of you'd show up at a race and they'd be like, it's Libra. For me, Libra. Libra is that like meme of like you put a patch on that water yeah. spewing out and you hope for the exactly. best. Exactly. But I did find it funny though of, um, well, yes, funny but not funny within these teams being set up that like um, Maserati was running with like Scudera Milan. Oh. was the name of their team and it was like a, all new cars and it, one of their drivers was Tazio and he apparently his car had such a problem with the exhaust fumes to the point where like his doctors warned him against racing because of like an asthma related to a respiratory illness he had developed so that he pre- <gasps> but he didn't care and he just raced with a face mask on you know Tazio is the man that's like I dance with the devil every day yeah, exactly. Um, and it was actually pretty funny in the um, GP of Nations with Tazio because it was like it was actually held in Geneva because Switzerland was in a good position to hold a race in that time. And I Geneva think, was not. Yeah, Switzerland was not part of the war. She was neutral in whatever the Swiss neutrality meant. Yeah, and then actually one of the main highlights from that race was I guess like Vilma at one point crossed in front of Tazio and Tazio got mad and rammed him from behind on a chicane <gasps> and like pushed him fully off track and they showed Tazio the black flag being like that's not okay and he ignored it they waved the black flag so many times and he didn't do anything they gave up and said fine fine you can kill whoever you want it, did he let Mariah carry it when he said yeah, like, like I, I cannot read or like in in his instance I can't see I can't see you know the exhaust fumes <laughs> um and then but at the end though I think Tazio ended up in like fourth place and Vilma ended up in third place so it's like I guess race organizers were like, he'd be 
meet you. It's Obviously, kinda, that didn't affect much. It's kind of like how now would sometimes like if the person who did the sketchy thing is still like not winning, they're not going to get anything sometimes. Yeah. I think the race ended up being won by Farina and an Alfa Romeo, but it's kind of funny because he ends up sitting out most of the 1947 season due to like a disagreement with management. Because apparently, I'm going to put this in open quotation marks, he had a petulant streak. What's a petulant streak? He would just like be disagreeable. Oh, he'd be a little asshole. Yeah, he'd be a little bitch. And then management would be like, you know who's not in the park this week? This little bitch. Yeah. I understand them. I wish they could do that sometimes when Nikita does something sketch. <laughs> They're just like, no more car for you. No more car for you this week. No more car for you ever, I wish they could say, but they don't. Um, yeah, and then when we go to the 1947 season, this is actually the first one where we get, like, I guess, more Formula One racing. But some races are still holding their own formulas. Pretty much if we look at the seasons in this time, it just kind of starts being more Formula One races are being held. We're under the Formula One regulations, pretty exactly. much. Where they're getting closer and closer because the industry and yeah, the infrastructure more, is re- being rebuilt. Yeah, enough to be able to start hosting um, events to this re- particular regulation now. Okay. Which I I feel like now I get to be that person where they're like, oh, like, it's our this May season of F1. And I'm like, well, technically, it started in 1946. Technically, it did that. I get to be right, but not interesting. (laughs) You get to be that John John Mulaney sketch where it's like, it's midnight. And it was like, no one fucking cares and kicks you out of your house. Kicks me out of their sleepover. Yeah. But yeah, but 1947, obviously still not a championship season for us, but still like good alphas and Maseratis. They kind of get a firm dominance on the beginning bit. But with each season, we're kind of seeing like this season, we have 32 GPs held, four major events. I mean, we're kind of, as we keep on going, we're starting to see more like countries actually getting events. Like in this, we're having like Brazilian and Argentinian and British races starting to kind of come into the calendar. So we're slowly kind of starting to see a more like world presence once again in racing and then i believe with that season it was like villaresi was our like winner i'm putting in air quotes because they didn't really have an official winner because it was like the constructors it was just who has the most wins but it's like not everybody went to all the races so it's hard to determine but out of that season i think the craziest race was the 1947 italian gp Ooh. Where it was like held at a fairground near Milan because they were like and a what driver went off the road and killed five people and they never used that track ever again. The, the Italians went vibe check failed. The track is cursed. <laughs> I feel like a lot of their tracks when the Italians go vibe check failed. The track is cursed. You know it ain't good. You know yeah. something really bad happened that they were like no. No, 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 no. Yeah, and then as we also see in the 1948 season, we're kind of starting to see more of the historic. I mean, historic at this point, they're maybe like 20 years old, but starting tracks that we know starting to come back in like in 1948, it was the return of Monaco. Monaco, that bitch be back. That bitch be back. One by Farina. And then we also in 1948 actually have Silverstone show up because before that, the main racetrack in England was actually Brookfields, which pretty much I think the idea is it took them forever to build. And by the time they built it, it was outdated because they had problems with like noise clearance and a bunch of like I think red tape trying to build it. But pretty much during the war, the track actually got destroyed and it hasn't been raced at, I think, 
with like Formula One stuff like that since like 1939. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. And also in the 1948 season, we actually have Ferrari entering as an independent team. <gasps> Enzo coming back. Yeah, Enzo's like, I'm back. I build an engine and attach wheels to it. Vroom, vroom, motherfucker. Yeah, because they came in with like a Tipo 125 with like a V12 engine. Ooh. So they're like, we're we're here to party. We're here to party and party party, man. Yeah, and so within that season, we have like 23 GPs are being held, um, notably the Swiss GP that actually is the one that Varzi dies at. Oh, yeah, because at the end, there's a reason why there's we wear helmets. There's a reason helmets. why we wear helmets. And it's him. What happened there? Yeah, what happened to Varzi? I think it's like he he flew out of his car. I think it was one of those dealers. Because I feel like there was a lot of flying out of cars. So many people died because they flew. They were Icarus. They got too close to the sun, but the sun meant a tree in front of them and just didn't end well. It was very cartoonish, but not very funny. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then actually after he dies is kind of how we get Alberto Scari in Alpha. Scari in a Ferrari. That's, we are moving closer to Scari in a Ferrari. Um, and I believe within, um, because he raced at the GPD ACF. Um, it's a, it's close enough. We can get there. Yeah. And I think that was actually the one where it's like some people in his family like didn't want him to do it because obviously Scari's dad had been a driver and they thought that there was too many coincidences to like oh. his father's racing career and his racing career and they're like the vibes are bad with this vibe checking right yeah they were like there's too many weird similarities to your dad and he was like i'm a race car driver and i'm gonna race i go vroom 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 i go vroom vroom yeah but actually it does end up being even more creepy coincidences with his own father but we will get into that when we get to okay yeah and then as well within the swiss gp um we have the first appearance of fangio (gasps) yeah it's his first race in european racing it didn't go well he didn't like it he went back to argentina and then obviously he returned in 1949 oh it's just to explain like the listeners who don't know who is it juan miguel fangio yeah he is the first ever like five-time world champion in formula one race um five times right Four or five? No, four is Prost and Seb, five is Fangio, and then seven is Schumacher and Lewis. But no, he is the first ever, like, consecutive world championship winner. Um, yeah, I would say I that. I say so, because he was in the 50s, so there he wasn't was really 50s. a lot to, to happen. To be before you. Yeah, so it was like, that's why he was big, but before then, he was just, he was, he was Argentinian. Just Argentinian. Yeah, yeah, he was a, just popping a, his head in, going, what's this like? What's this like? Goes there and be like, nope, I'm going to go back to Argentina. Yeah, um, but actually, it was a pretty bad race weekend, the Swiss GP. They had three drivers die in total during the weekend, um, two in the um, formula racing, and then one in a motorcycle race, so bad Swiss GP. Not the worst race of the term. Is that the Switch GP? I remember you told me like there's a reason Switzerland hasn't no, just a race. No, it's not that one. That was later. So it gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah, yeah, it does. Because the country, into- yeah, because the country of Switzerland uh, made racing illegal in their country. Like not illegal, but they just didn't want to host ever a Formula yeah, One race. But we're gonna get we're gonna get into that. that. I just later. don't know how bad that race was. I thought this was the race, but they just well, get- it's we'll get into it because okay. that's not exactly the circumstances, okay. but. I don't have time to get into it right now. So <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and then we get to the 1949 season. I know. We're almost we get there. We're almost there. Almost there. It's the last season before we get to the official championships with like races are running more Formula A regulations, but they're, as we said, they will eventually change that. Um, and then Silverstone actually becomes a grand event oh. for the first time. A grand epivet. 
Yes. Yeah, and it's actually altered. To, they make it faster, and that's kind of how it starts to get like, ooh, ooh. it's prestigious. And Monza finally comes back. Monza. They're like, we can't keep on going random poison in the lyrics. We, we need the Temple of Speed back. We, we know what she bitch. does. We know what a good bitch is. You can't keep a good bitch down. You can't. You can't keep Monza down. Um, and within that, we have a Scari in a Ferrari. <gasps> it's happening. Yeah. And then we also have Fangio, which both actually won like five GPs of 27 held total. And then um, we have Fangio in a Maserati sponsored by the Auto Club of Argentina back. Oh. Yeah, he won like five out of the seven races he was in. He was like, wait a minute, I'm good. It's like, I might actually do it. Yeah, and that's funny because then Farina and Fangio would actually be put together at Alpha in the 1950 season that's about to come around. So obviously mm. Fangio did well enough to get a seat for the next season. Scotty in the bottom. Yeah, and within this one, um, no, but we have the 1949 Buenos Aires GP, where during practice, oh. Vilmay dies. Oh, yeah, that was the one yeah. where it was like a lot of things happened. Yeah, it was actually interesting it. because he was wearing kind of like a helmet for the yeah. first time. And that was yeah. actually the race he, or practice he died at. And I believe it's one where I think I'll just leave, but without really going too much into it, just like a lot of weird things that happened to Garrett ended up with like him and like a tree, I think. It was because um, he hit a hay bale and it wasn't like, like it was pretty much kind of like how um, the other Italian guy died. Where it was like, no, the other Italian guy rolled and crushed his head. This guy, um, the male, pretty much got launched out of his car and hit a tree and that's how he died and yeah, yeah. It's, it's not fun a lot of these are like questionable safety choices well I mean they <laughs> did the best with what they thought they had it just wasn't a lot compared to mine standards but yeah. we move on you move on and I think we also- Raymond Sommer died soon as well he died the same year but I forgot the race but it was like this big end to this rivalry that they thought would um be moved over to the actual Formula One season when it comes in. It was like, would he have been a world champion? Would he have not? How would this rivalry gone? But mm-hmm. it kind of was edited really soon before they could actually be, what's the word? Like brought into advance with the Formula One season when it officially began in the 50s. Yeah, and then just our last one of this was that we actually, the Italian GP returns to Monza and we get like the win by Ascari in a Ferrari. Ascari which in the I think is the dream probably return of Monza to the race circuit of a like Ferrari. one by an Italian, an Italian car, an Italian race. They love that shit. Yeah, and actually Ferrari got a win in Le Mans in the same year. So oh. they were like, everything's coming up, Ferrari. Everything's coming up for us. We're uh, You can't keep up a good bitch down. Yeah, and I guess just my general thoughts about this period in that it's kind of like, in a way, since Germany was gone, since Germany was actually kind of banned from racing in this time, they also weren't in a position to be racing. Yeah. The kind of the Mercedes dominance was obviously not there. not there, and it seemed to kind of open up the field for other challengers. Yeah. Yeah, and the same thing, which is kind of interesting to see kind of what teams kind of got the jump on coming back from the war. And with, what like, their teams cars. were, like, okay to come back. Like, Italy was definitely part of the Axis power, but they were viewed in a different light compared mm-hmm. to what Germany was doing. Yeah, and I mean, as well, kind of the teams we see dominating here are obviously part of the story then with our 1950 season, yeah. where it's like, if you're doing well in the 1949 unofficial season, when they finally roll out the official season, you're going to be in a good position. You're because you've already 
have developed this car like um, Alpha and a couple other um, constructors from that who weren't obviously facing the problem of kind of like less money to build and develop a car if you've already developed the car. And there's also, I think you mentioned, we were talking about this, where it was like a lot of them did get funding from the U.S. Army in an attempt to reunite the Yeah, within, like, industries. Italy and such, where they were like, if we can if we can infuse some money into Italian, like, automotive engineering, can we kind of, like, help spur the economy in Italy a little bit? And which it does during the 50s, and we will probably get into that more yeah. during that period. Because the fi- guess what? The 50s are pretty much Italian cars dominating the field. Yeah, and then with the slowly, like, creeping British peasants. But we don't want to give too much away no, we don't want to we don't want to like spoil them yeah we're ending on our cliffhanger but <laughs> we start in 1950 and we have no. something new that but we guess, will get more into next time but i guess like this was very interesting where it's like i think kind of like our running theme is the industry being tied with politics and how it is being i don't know how to say this but it was like it's always gonna industry with politics are always gonna be tied and you can definitely see it within these few years and even when you look back within well, I think it's like racing doesn't exist in a vacuum as yeah. we've been saying through a lot of these through lines yeah unlike how many people want to believe that <laughs> racing is it's some of its holes and compared <laughs> to the things around it yeah but i guess we'll go more into detail on it later uh, for now we'll say bye that was a weirder by than usual.